1: In London, this is The Economist with Tasting Menu, a selection of the tastiest morsels from this week's issue. I'm Anne McElvoy and I lead Economist Radio. This week, how to determine good jazz from bad, the reason people sleep badly in a new bed and why central banks might start dropping money from helicopters. But first... Could she fix it? was our cover line this week. After an emphatic recent victory on a home turf in New York, Hillary Clinton looks almost certain to succeed in securing the Democratic nomination later this year. But as we argued, she needs bolder ideas on what to do if she gets it.
2: A typical Clinton speech on the economy contains some reflections on the tornadoes of globalisation and automation that have torn up opportunities for less-skilled workers – then culminates in a proposal to introduce a minuscule two-year tax credit for companies to encourage profit-sharing schemes.
1: Mrs Clinton's policies often seem too feeble and some are downright fiddly.
2: Rightly fearing that some Wall Street banks are too big to fail, Mrs Clinton wants an extra tax on their debt. Making sure banks hold enough capital and scaling back the tax deductibility of interest on all firms' debt would do the job better And be simpler.
1: We did make clear that we're holding Mrs. Clinton to a higher standard than her rivals.
2: But she needs a compelling pitch, because if Americans concluded that the only way to bring radical change was to elect a Trump, Cruz, or Sanders, it would represent a disastrous failure of the political center.
1: So we nudged Mrs. Clinton to be more, well, daring.
2: We are also asking her to be ambitious just when Washington has been plagued by gridlock and obstruction for its own sake.
1: So if you've got any thoughts on Hillary's big ideas or the lack thereof, why not tweet us using the hashtag EconComments and tell us. Dragging ourselves away from the maddening gridlock on Capitol Hill we take a liberating jaunt through the streets of France
0: and an article in our Europe section this week mused on the musings of the French. A traffic intersection may not seem an obvious subject for metaphysical reflection, but in France, few aspects of life escape philosophical investigation. And the musing du jour, the humble roundabout. Uncommon in France a generation ago, they number some 30,000 today, more than in Britain, which invented the modern version, and an estimated 500 more are built each year.
1: So why the penchant Faudresse-Rompois, the opportunity to show off the locality's decorative prowess?
0: The mayor of La haye Foissiere in Western France says that his roundabout installation, a hovering spaceship single-handedly made a name for the town. Well, you don't say, but perhaps these swirling junctions are just an absurd metaphor for life. Cars are set in perpetual circular motion, devoid of jams, but heading nowhere. Well, Mr Sartre would have relished that. And taking the next
1: exit, we move to our Asia section, where we explore a quarrel over an ancient diamond. As our article explained, with so much confrontation over such a small jewel, it's between a rock and a hard place, if ever there is one. An awful curse
3: will befall any man who dares wear the Kohenor, according to a medieval Indian text. On the other hand, it said, whoever owned the mountain of light
1: would also own the world. Despite the mixed messages, for centuries, a whole host of emperors and kings have fought over the little gem. Eventually, the Victorian
3: British, who took possession of it, whittled the rock down from a glassy 186 carats to a brilliant 106 and gave it to
1: their queen. But this week, the tale took a rather unexpected turn. The government
3: of India rejected a request by an Indian NGO to reclaim the stone. In a baffling turn, the Solicitor-General told the Supreme Court the jewel was neither forcibly taken nor stolen from colonial India.
1: Now this didn't go down awfully well with the populace. Within two days, the government
3: backtracked, resolving to bring back the Kohinoor diamond in an amicable manner.
1: And so the glittering tug-of-war continues. To our business section now, where a tobacco giant is trying to frame itself as a diamond in the rough... As the world's biggest tobacco firm, Philip Morris International is a household name. But, as an article explained, the company is puffing out smoke signals about a change in strategy towards its customers' health.
4: It may seem an odd goal for a company that last year sold 850 billion cigarettes. But its boss... Andrei Kalanzopoulos insists Philip Morris is on the verge of a revolution.
1: One that comes in the form of reduced-risk products.
4: On April 19th, the firm said its top offering in this category, ICOS, accounted for one in 30 cigarette sales in Tokyo, a test market.
1: And the firm has thrown in some of its own evidence
4: to boot. It reports that the vapour created by ICOS contains just one-tenth as much harmful or potentially harmful chemicals... As a standard cigarette.
1: Sounds promising, though persuading regulators may be tricky.
4: After decades of distrust, it can be hard to know when a tobacco company is advancing health and when it is blowing smoke.
1: Tobacco companies advancing health? Whatever next? Huge central banks dropping money straight into your bank account? Well, yes, actually. Flipping over to our finance section, our free exchange columnist turned his attention to an evocative new policy being considered to get the world out of a
2: slump. Helicopter money sounds like an item on an expense claim at a hedge fund. In fact, it is shorthand for a daring approach to monetary policy, printing money to fund government spending or to give people cash. Ardent supporters see it as a foolproof way to perk up slumping economies.
1: And they certainly need perking up.
2: The world's big, rich economies have all joined Japan in a rut of chronically low inflation and interest rates.
1: Our columnist believes the advantages are pretty clear.
2: Unlike changes to interest rates, stimulus paid for by the central bank does not rely on increased borrowing to work. This reduces the risk that central banks help inflate new bubbles and adds to their potency when crisis or uncertainty make the banking system unreliable.
1: You can read all our analysis of the proposed policy in this week's issue at economist.com. But before we move on, there's one thing worth clarifying.
2: Advocates of helicopter money do not really intend to throw money out of aircraft.
1: Now that's a disappointment. But on to our science section, where we have some good news for frequent flyers, money droppers included. While staying in the same hotel bed earns you those well-deserved loyalty points, scientists have revealed that it could have performance benefits too. An article explained why a familiar bed gives a good night's sleep.
5: That people often experience trouble sleeping in a different bed in unfamiliar surroundings is a phenomenon known to psychologists as the first-night effect. This is because if a person stays in the same room the following night, they tend to sleep more soundly.
1: The researcher found that the effect was probably some consequence of
5: evolution. She also knew from previous work conducted on birds and dolphins that these animals put half of their brains to sleep at a time so that they can rest while remaining vigilant enough to avoid predators.
1: And her experiment suggested that the same is true for us.
5: More specifically, On the first night only, the left hemispheres of their brains did not sleep nearly as deeply as their right hemispheres did.
1: So the dozy first-night business traveller remains on guard.
5: To wake people up when they hear noises when sleeping in an unfamiliar environment, even one with a comfy king-size bed, jacuzzi, deluxe minibar and a distinct lack of predators. Wangle a nice hotel room next time you travel and you can argue that a similar booking in the next hotel may be the only way to get a good night's kip.
1: Yes, I'll raise that with the editor. And while you're enjoying a drink in the jacuzzi, why not pop on some jazz? But what to choose? If you're struggling to find the right piece,
0: our Books and Arts section reviewed a new guide to distinguishing good jazz from bad. Jazz is not a popular art form. To its many detractors, it amounts to little more than pretentious noodling, based as it is largely on improvisation. To others, it is simply mystifying. Guilty, but one enthusiast decided to clear things up. Ted Joyer understands why people find jazz so esoteric. The problem, as he sees it, is that no-one has ever bothered to explain what good or bad jazz really is. Mr Joyer took up this challenge, starting at the irregularly beating heart of the genre. Most useful to the uninitiated the book provides tips on what good improvisation really means. Bad players tend to rely heavily on a small number of rhythmic and harmonic patterns in their phrases. Heaven forfend! And as the book pinpoints, it's unadulterated originality that makes jazz unique. When you see a live performance, you may be watching a 60-year-old musician playing a 100-year-old piece, but what is produced on stage has never been, and will never be, played again.
1: Unlike our shows, which you can listen to whenever you like, I'm Anne McElvoy, the Miles Davis of Economist Radio, and that was our tasting menu. If you're hungry for a little more, you can find all of our stories on our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.